Our passage for today is found in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through verse 22. I'll give you a moment to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we do have it on the screen. You can look right up there and find our text. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest on the basis, on, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is the word of the Lord. You can all be seated. I want to start this morning by posing a question to you, a question that has been phrased in various different ways by various philosophers, thinkers, um, even your everyday uh, person throughout life. And the question is this, what is the height of, hu of the human existence? What is it that men and women ought to aspire to for the greatest fulfillment in this human exper experience? There are various answers that you might hear to this question. What is it that is the greatest height of human existence? There are some who would pose that the greatest height of human existence is to find the greatest amount of pleasure in this life possible. That all else in life is purely obstacles to you finding the greatest amount of pleasure in this life. Some would pose, as certain philosophers have, that the greatest height in human existence is the actualization of your inner self, self-expression, to take what you know to be true of you and make it true outwardly, to live out your self-expression. We certainly see this in the world around us in various ways with regards to the sexual revolution, the rise in transgenderism and, and homosexuality. We see the answer to this question coming from various corners. Some would say it's through pleasure. Some would say it's through self-expression. Some would say it's uh, through commitment. Some would say it's through all kinds of various things that 
that there are ways in which humans can achieve the greatest height of their existence. But I pose to you today that the actual answer to this question is not to be found in, in pleasure here on earth. The height of human existence is not one that consists of having the most fun now or, or completing your self-expression, but rather the height of human existence, as we see from Scripture, is to draw near to God. That being near to God, being in the presence of God, is the ultimate experience for humanity. There is nothing that surpasses it. There is nothing that even comes close to attaining to that level with regards to the human experience. We see this even when we think about the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, the very first chapters, what was it about the Garden of Eden that made it so great? Even secular writers, secular thinkers today are or even in movies, television, the Garden of Eden, to this day, remains a sort of ideal. The pinnacle of the human experience of the greatest joy and satisfaction and happiness to be found is in the Garden of Eden. I would propose to you that the answer to why that is, why is it that the Garden of Eden was so great, was so amazing, did not have to do with the beautiful plants that were in the garden. It didn't have to do with all the delicious fruit that was in the garden, though there was lots of good fruit there. It wasn't found in the fact that there were all kinds of neat animals that wouldn't bite you if you tried to pet them. It wasn't found in the water. It wasn't found in the plants. But what made the Garden of Eden so spectacular, why it remains to this day the pinnacle of ultimate human satisfaction and joy and the greatest height that we could attain to, is because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, the presence of God was accessible. That Adam and, Eve and Adam and Eve lived in the very presence of God freely, naked and unashamed, the text tells us, before God utterly and completely in his presence and seeing his glory. It's because of this that the Garden of Eden was so great. Without God's presence, the Garden of Eden would be just another garden. It would be just another place where there is grass and weeds and animals, but it would not have been the pinnacle of the human existence up to that point and up to this point. And it is because of that that we see the return to the presence of God. Something like the Garden of Eden is still something that human beings desire. And when we think about the, the change in the, in the order of things, whenever Adam and Eve sinned, the presence of God then no longer was found in the Garden of Eden, but it shifted and was then found where? In the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And then from there, in the temple of God, the Holy of Holies in the temple was a place where the very presence of God was. And, and it was there that no one was allowed to go and, uh, and no one was allowed to enter except for one man, one time a year. That being the high priest, the subject of our discussion today. The pinnacle of the human existence it's to be drawn near to God. It's to be in the very presence of God. But here is the problem. The problem is that a great chasm now exists between humanity and God. And humans have now as their greatest need to be brought near to God. To experience the fullness of what humanity has to offer means to be found and brought near the presence of God. The problem is, though, we cannot enter 
the Holy of Holies. We cannot come into the presence of God in the state that we are now in. The issue enters into our discussion in our text here today, along with the solution to the problem. But first, as we begin our our study today in Hebrews 7, the Holy Spirit brings, uh, begins by pointing to us the problem and how it has not been solved. And he does so by pointing out the inadequacy of Judaism. Point number one, the inadequacy of Judaism. In verses 11 through 14, we see the author here speaking in regards to the Jewish system that was in place and to its inadequacy. And we see in our very first verse of our passage today what the Holy Spirit points to as a demonstration of this inadequacy, the inadequacy of the Jewish system and of the law. In verse 11 is pointed out, he says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The problem is right here identified with Judaism, with the law and the system that was in place is that it could not bring about perfection. That seems like a very harsh standard to us, does it not? Perfection as the standard of whether or not it is adequate. We wouldn't take this stance on anything else in our life. Imagine if you were to have a contractor come into uh, your home and do some work and everything worked well, everything looked good, everything was so close and yet, ooh, there's a nick right over here. Ooh, there's a scratch on this spot. It's not perfect and therefore it is inadequate. It is weak, it is useless. That standard would not be acceptable in any other arena. It's not a realistic way for us to live our lives with regards to how we have work done in our house or even how we expect others to live. The question then that's begging to be asked as we see here this objective standard, perfection being the requirement, the question that's begging to be asked is why on earth is perfection the thing to which we must attain? Why is it that anything short of perfection, the author would say here, is inadequate? It's not good enough. The reason that perfection, in this case, righteousness or sinlessness, the reason that this kind of perfection is necessary is because God is holy. The holiness of God is the the very reason why perfection is necessary if we are to come into the presence of God. Why? Because he is utterly perfect. He is utterly set apart. He is utterly other than us. And because of this, he is utterly righteous and cannot even be in the presence of sin, cannot even be touched by sin. God is so holy that no one can stand in his presence. No one can see his full glory and survive. There are various examples we could look at in Scripture of the holiness of God and the severity of the holiness of God. But I'm going to have us consider today the story of Yuza. Yuza in 1 Chronicles chapter 13. If you're unfamiliar with this story and what happens to this poor man, it was in the time of David as he reigned over Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant for years had been uh, separated from Israel. It had been It had been taken by the Philistines, and if you're familiar with how that story 
breaks down a rather amazing story where the, where the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, put it alongside their god, Dagon, and if you remember what happens, uh, every day that they would come in, they would find their god fallen over and bowing down to the Ark, and then they came in and found their god not only bowing down to the Ark, but his hands and his head were broken off, and uh, great curses and, and plagues came upon the Philistines to the point where they said, forget it, we don't want this here any longer, get it out of here, and they sent it away, and it ultimately was brought back to, to Israel and yet never restored to its rightful place. King David saw this as a problem, and he said, let us restore the Ark of the Covenant to the temple of God. And so he made it his mission, made it his purpose to go and take the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to the temple of God. And he did so in a way that, though it was seemed right to him, the Bible says that they put it on a new cart, emphasizing the fact that this was not just some rinky-dink cart, this was a brand new cart designed specifically to hold the Ark of the Covenant and to bring it back to where it belonged. But if you recall, that, that was not the way the Ark was to be handled. The Lord laid out specific ways in which the Ark was to be carried by specific people. And it was never to be touched, it was never to be handled in this way, but only in the way God prescribed. And along the way, as Yuza was with the Ark and, and riding on this cart along with the Ark of the Covenant, they came to some rough road, and the cart wobbled, and the Ark of the Covenant seemed like it was going to fall, and so in an attempt to steady the Ark, what did Yuza do? He reached out and put his hand on the Ark to steady it, and if you recall, in an instant, the man died. Yuza, simply for touching the Ark of God, was struck dead right there on the spot, and we hear this story, and we say, that sounds incredibly severe that sounds unfair and the reason we react this way is because we don't truly understand the holiness of God we don't truly feel the weight of his holiness and we don't feel the weight of our sinfulness in the book the holiness of God by R.C. Sproul it's a book that myself and some of the other men here at church are making our way through R.C. Sproul speaking about this writing about this uh, situation with Yuza says, what he did was what any pious Jew would do to keep the ark from falling into the mud. He reached his hand to steady the ark, to protect the holy object from falling. It was not a premeditated act of defiance towards God. It was a reflexive action. He stretched out his hand and placed it squarely on the ark, steadying it in place lest it fall to the ground. An act of holy heroism no, it was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Yuza assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. This is an amazing statement that R.C. Sproul writes for us here and a statement that I believe is a demonstration of the holiness of God and of the sinfulness of man. When Yuza placed his hand on the ark, it was not what was behind his heart. It was not his intention to steady the ark for which he was killed. It was simply for the fact that he was not holy. And he would dare to approach the holy and place his hand on it. 
This is the severity of the holiness of God. And this begins to help us see the problem more clearly and why it is that perfection is what is required for the problem to be solved. If man is wicked and God is so holy that even touching the ark would bring immediate death, then how could we possibly hope to draw near to this God? That is the question. If Uzziah died for touching the ark, how could we ever hope to be in the presence of God? How could we ever hope to draw near to God? That is the problem. But it's a problem that the Lord has provided a way to answer. And it's not found in the Levitical priesthood. It's not found through the law. But rather it is found in another kind of priest. Not just another Levitical priest, but a priest of another order. A priest that came after the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, a priest that came after the order of Melchizedek, not after Aaron, one who was never defeated, not even by the greatest obstacles that humanity faces, but one who came and who conquered, which brings us to point number two, a conquering priest. We see pictured for us this idea of a priest who conquers in verses 15 through 17 where we read this, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our new and better high priest is one who was qualified not because he was descended from the right person, not because of his lineage, but because of his power, because of his authority. Christ earned this qualification to be the better and true high priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he earned it by his defeat over sin and death. We see this in various passages, such as Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ came and did what the law could never do, did what the Levitical priests could never do. He came and obtained victory. Not only did Christ defeat sin, defeat death, but it goes beyond that as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. We see this as Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Not only did Christ come to this earth and achieve victory over sin, victory over death, demonstrate the power that he has of an indestructible life, but he then took this victory through the work that he had obtained and granted it to us. That victory over sin and death is now ours in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus did is like whacking this amazing grace pinata. Jesus, the only one who could break this thing open, 
bust the pinata and outflows the grace and we, the children of God, are able to partake freely of the grace of God because of what Christ has done for us. It is by this that we have hope for eternal life because this high priest has secured eternal life for us. Christ's priesthood is one that is predicated on power, specifically the power of an indestructible life. When we consider whether or not it is that Christ is able to be our high priest, whether he actually has the power to not only fulfill the law but grant us access to God, where do we need to look? We look to his resurrection, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead, his defeat of sin and death. It is by that power that we find hope that he is the better priest, a priest forever. So we see now then that the priesthood has been changed, the priesthood has been replaced, and we have point number three, a changing of the guard. We see in verses 18 and 19, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This, these two verses here demonstrate for us the epitome of what we call the law gospel distinction. The distinction between life under the old covenant, which is the law, the law that came and though has served a purpose and still serves a purpose today, with regards to perfection and making us perfect and righteous before God, what can the law do? Nothing. With regards to making us perfect and drawing us near to God, the text tells us in verse 18 that it is weak and useless. The law is weak and useless to bring righteousness, to draw us to God. Now, we want to be careful when we say that the law is useless, that the law is weak. And I, what I don't want you to hear me say is that the Old Testament can now be thrown out, that it is useless, it is pointless, it is too weak. We are in no way intended by reading this verse to in any way disconnect or unhitch the Old Testament from the New. The law does still serve for us a purpose, a purpose of showing us our sin, of demonstrating for us what it is to be righteous and what it is for us that we are sinful and guilty. For indeed, Paul says in Romans 7, I would have not have known what it was to sin had it not been for the law. The law does indeed reveal to us our sin and the righteous requirement for sin, but it can do nothing to bridge the gap. With regards to righteousness, the law is imperfect. It is weak. It is useless, which is why we need the gospel, which is why we need Christ, who has come to fulfill the law for us, who has come to provide for us a hope, who has come to bridge the gap and bring us near to God, who has come to make us perfect, righteous, sinless. This is the changing of the guard that we see from the old covenant to the new. If you have ever been to Washington, D.C. and seen the grave of the unknown soldier, it's a really amazing thing to see. And one of the most amazing things, if, if you ever go and, and are able to, to wait around and see what's called the changing of the guard, there is a 24-7 guard placed over that tomb. There is always a soldier on guard watching over that tomb. And every hour, or during the summer, every half hour, 
the guard is changed. And there is a ceremony that takes place of this changing of the guard that one hands over guard to the next. And there is always 24-7 a guard over this. We see in our text here a changing of the guard. But a changing of the guard that is not like what had been taking place. For what we see further down in Hebrews chapter 7 is that the Levitical priest, they changed. They rotated in and out, but they did so constantly. There was always a need for another priest. There was always a need for the changing of the guard because no priest was good enough. No priest was priest forever. In the same way that there is a constant changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. But what we see now in our text here in Hebrews is that we see one final, one for all time, final exchange of the guard rather than a continual cycle that it has been. There will be no other priest to come after Jesus Christ. He is our final and forever high priest. The simple and immediate understanding of this text is that the Levitical priesthood is obsolete because it has been replaced by a new, a greater, a better priesthood, one that will last forever. This changing of the guard is one in which we find a new and final guard that is unbelievably better than the old, infinitely better. Christ's priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, is of a totally different kind than the, Le- than the Levitical priesthood and is, is far far superior this changing of the guard is like the changing of the guard between skinny steve rogers in the first avengers with buff fit superhuman captain america and i mean avengers infinity war captain america with the beard when he really was cool this is the picture of the changing of the guard that we have here no one would ever ever need to be guard again because we have one who has replaced the priesthood forever and replaced it with something infinitely better. Jesus Christ, our new and great high priest, priest after the order of Melchizedek, will never need to be replaced for his priesthood is final. One thing that should become plainly clear to those who study the book of Hebrews is that not just the priesthood, but the whole system of Judaism is obsolete. It has been replaced with something better. The shadow has been replaced with the substance. And therefore, anyone who is still clinging to Judaism, clinging to the shadow, is clinging to that which is weak and useless and can bring no hope for eternity. Judaism, therefore, like All religions outside Christianity can do nothing to draw us to God. Only through Christ is this made possible. Only through Christ can we draw near to God. Shadows can do nothing for us. Only the substance can make this happen. We have then, point number four, a better covenant and one that is guaranteed. Verses 20 through 22 says this, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Here again in this passage we see the immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God as a reason for the hope that we have. 
what we are seeing here in verses 20 through 22 is that we have a covenant that has been that is not only better but it is a covenant that is guaranteed with an oath from god at uh, holiday world or most theme parks you'll know that to ride certain rides you have to be a certain height and as a child growing up there was nothing more demoralizing than waiting in a roller coaster line only to get to the front and have the attendant break out that PVC pipe and stand it next to you and swing it over your head. And they never just did it once, did they? They did it two or three times just so you knew full well you are not tall enough to ride this ride. There's nothing as a child that was more demoralizing than that. So it was a really cool addition to me whenever Holiday World decided, you know what, rather than have these arguments and probably fights, I'm sure they happened there in the in the, the roller coaster ride where people were denied access knowing they were tall enough. Holiday World decided we're going to put something at the entrance where you can come and be officially measured and can be given a bracelet. A bracelet that is a certain color signifying that you are tall enough to ride this number of rides. And if you were tall enough, you were given a bracelet that said, I can ride all of the rides. It was a guarantee that you could ride those rides. So that when you stepped up to the to the gate there and the attendant came with his PVC pipe, regardless of what that PVC pipe measurement said, you could hold up that wristband and say, access granted. <laughs> the officials up at the front gave me this. I am allowed to ride this ride and there's nothing that you can say about it. I, it has been guaranteed and it's been guaranteed with an oath. This is the better covenant that we have in Christ Jesus. This better covenant is one through which we are able to draw near to God. We are enabled to do this because of the high priest of this covenant. One who was able to make us perfect and righteous and actually take away our sins. Something that the law could never do and to this day can never do. The law could merely show us our sin, but Christ is able to remove our sin and to guarantee access to God. What is amazing in, in R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God, another beautiful line that he writes, I'm not going to quote it for you, but he makes the point that uh, Moses, in, uh, in the instance when Moses asked to see the glory of God, what did God say to him? He said, no one can see my glory and live. But the Lord did do something special for Moses. He took Moses, he hid him in the cleft of the rock, a place where he could just barely peek out, barely see a little bit. And then, even after that, the Lord covered Moses' eyes, covered his face as he passed by. And then, just for a moment, removed the cover, allowed Moses to see what he says, merely the back of his glory. What R.C. Sproul says could be also translated the hindquarters of God's glory. Just a glimpse of the back of God's glory, just a taste, was so much that Moses' face radiated and he had to wear a veil around the children of Israel after that. But here's the amazing part, is that the thing which Moses was denied, being able to look at the very face of God, see his glory, the very thing that what Moses was denied, Christians look forward to being granted. Christians are given the promise and are expecting to be able to see the very glory of God, that which Moses was denied. Moses, of whom the Bible says there was no one more humble than he. We look forward to the day when we will get to see what he was denied. We will bask in the very glory of God. We will see him face to face. This 
is an amazing truth, a truth that sounds too good to be true. And yet it is true. And we might think, well, I'm not sure that I want to be exposed to the glory of God and all of his holiness, all of his glory. I see what happens in the Bible when people experience the glory of God. It's terrifying. Moses had to wear a veil. Uzzah was killed. Nadab and Abinahu were put to death because they offered strange fire to God and abused his holiness. I'm not sure that I want to experience the holiness of God. But recognize that the reason that that is true, and as I stand right now in my sin, I do not want to see the holiness of God. But it, yet it is, as we see from the Garden of Eden, the ultimate of human satisfaction, the ultimate experience that we could ever attain and aspire to, and it is what is going to be granted to us, but is going to be granted to us through Jesus Christ, who is able to do what the law couldn't do and perfect us, make, make us righteous, make us sinless by removing our sin and taking it on himself on the cross. We now are going to be presented before God in the day of glorification, sinless, righteous, perfect, because of Jesus Christ, our better high priest. Based on what we see in scripture, it is a very understandable response to not desire to be in the holiness of God and to experience his glory. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, we are being prepared for that day and will live in that reality for all of eternity. A reality that is indescribable, utter joy and satisfaction to the fullest degree. To think about what that will be like is very difficult, isn't it? To think about the fullest amount of joy, satisfaction that you could ever experience. The best way that I can think to describe it is to think about the greatest amount of joy that you have experienced here on earth. Or maybe the thing here on earth that brings you the most joy for many people, that is their family, their children, their spouses. For some, that is their job. For some, that is their hobby. Whatever the case may be, think of any good common grace that God has granted us here on earth to bring us joy and make us happy and allow us to enjoy his creation. Think of the most joy you've ever experienced here on this earth and magnify it times a million. That will be the joy we experience in Christ Jesus on the day that we stand in the presence of God. I had a conversation with a coworker when I worked at the hospital and she expressed a sentiment that we maybe have heard, we maybe have even felt before of, I look forward to heaven, I look forward to the day when I will be with the Lord, but man, life is really good for me right now. I don't know that I, that I wanna give it up right now. And it was a, an easy and, and joyful thing for me to get to tell her, then you don't understand the glory of God. You don't understand truly what heaven is going to be like and what it's going to be like because we will be in his presence. That all of the good things that you are thinking of and keeping you, making you want to stay here on earth for those good things, they are nothing compared to the joy that is to be revealed in us in Christ Jesus. All of the things that we see here on this earth are simple shadows of which Christ is the substance. All the good things that we experience pale in comparison to the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus because he is our better high priest, because he has guaranteed for us a better covenant. In Jesus, the great high priest, the curtain has been torn in two. Access to God has been granted. The highest human joy and experience is now, or, now ours. 
as we are able to be brought into the presence of God. And in that, brothers and sisters, we rejoice. Let's pray.